Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to please stand and turn to Psalm chapter 8. As we will first pray and then read the word of God. Psalm chapter 8. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 to 9, the NASB says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please be seated. So as we continue, church, our series preaching through the Psalms, we're going to consider Psalm number 8 as a whole today. And what Psalm number 8 does is that it celebrates the greatness of God. It celebrates the greatness of God. In fact, Psalm number 8 is a hymn of celebration and adoration that is very, 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 really, really special. Why? Because it is the only hymn in the entire Old Testament that's composed as a direct address to God. Quite simply, in Psalm number 8, David looks up at the heavens of, in the above and is simply in awe. And he speaks his heart and glorifies God. If you've ever wondered how to pray properly, if you've ever wondered how an Old Testament titan prays and adores God, you get those words in Psalm number 8. If you're a person who writes songs and wants to know how do you compose a tune that magnifies and glorifies God, you're going to find your words in Psalm number 8. If you've ever wondered what a godly person's thoughts sound like, if you took a microphone, put it up to their head and wondered what's going on in there, the words are going to be circulating in their mind 
sound like Psalm number 8. Now, last time we asked the question, what is man, from verse number 4. And we answered that apart from knowing God, a person has no understanding of who they are or what they are to do in this great universe. So, in order to know who you are, you must first know who God is. So the question we're going to answer this morning is, who is God? Because when we know who God is, then we know who we are. When we know who we are, we know our identity, our calling, our meaning, our purpose, and all those things point right back to the God that we know. So the psalm begins... It has an introduction, it says, for the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David. No one really knows what on the Gittith actually means. All we know is that psalm number 8 is meant to be sung. It's to the choir director, therefore, this is meant to be played on musical instruments. Now, we'll let the Bible scholars debate on about what the Gittith means. But the reality, church, is this. When you really know who God is, you're going to be filled with joy on the inside. That's not going to be a mustard seed's worth of joy. It's going to be an overflowing fountain of joy. And when you have overflowing joy on the inside, you have to get it out. And that joy is going to come out as outward praise. If you sit down and have the best meal of your life, and your mouth explodes with a symphony of senses, do you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to be quiet. Why? Because you have so much inward joy and delight on the inside, you have to get it out. In fact, your inward joy isn't going to be complete unless you get it out. If you listen to a beautiful song that makes you cry, if you listen or see a moving, engaging play and you say, wow, that was the best ever, you have to tell someone else about it. Because your inward joy will not be complete until it comes out as outward praise. So whether you're going to sing Psalm number 8 on the Gittith, whether you're going to use some drums, or vocal cords, or a guitar, your inward joy is not going to be complete until you get it out. The point is, when you really know who God is, you can't help but praise Him. And your joy as a human being will not be complete until you start praising God. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here's the first point. The main question this morning is, who is God? God is, he really is God. He really is capital G-O-D, God. He is Lord, all capitals. He's also Lord, capital L only. Who is God? He really is God. He is Lord, all caps, and Lord, capital L only. He is Lord, all caps, meaning his name is Yahweh. 
He's a God who reveals himself to us. He reveals himself in his word. He reveals himself in his son. He reveals himself in his miracles. He reveals himself in creation. And he reveals himself because he wants to be known. God never intended to keep himself a secret. And he wants to be known so that we can restore a broken relationship and come close to our maker. But more than that, God is more than just being personal. Because you can be personable with an evil spirit. He is Lord, all caps. He's also Lord, capital L only, meaning he is Adonai. He is the supreme cosmic ruler of everything. He is the one true God who exercises control over everything else. Who is God? He is Lord and Lord. God is majestic. Majestic means he is mighty, he is great, he has strength, he has awesomeness. And what is majestic about God? His name. Now, when the Hebrew Old Testament talks about the name of God, it's not just talking about Yahweh. It's not just talking about Adonai. His name refers to his fame, his reputation, or information that is known about him. Beloved, what we know about God is that in the beginning in creation, God made everything. And if he made everything, it's all his. Do you know in the beginning, in creation, God did not start from scratch? Because there was no scratch. There was nothing. There was nothingness. He and he alone, Yahweh and Adonai, had the ability to make everything from nothing. When you look at the world around you, here's a little philosophical bent on things. Everything that exists comes from something before it that existed. You see a building. How did it get there? It didn't pop into existence. Construction builders built it. An architect had to design it. You see a baby. Where'd that baby come from? A mommy and a daddy said, let's have a baby. Nine months later, here's little Johnny. The point is that everything that has being in reality came from something before it that existed. So when we march that all the way back to the beginning of time, who do we meet up with? Who is the being that always had being that created everything else that has being? God, who is Lord and Lord. And God's name is majestic because his fingerprints are everywhere. People say funny things like, you can't prove that God exists. To which I would say, have you opened your eyes lately? Do you see the sun? That's God's. Are you alive? That's because of God. Did the sun rise this morning and illuminate the world to give fuel to plant life? That's God. Is it going to be nighttime tonight? Yes, that's God. Are you breathing air that nourishes your lungs and brings red blood cells to your brain? That's God. 
Everything is God's. There is no place in creation where God is not. So the miracles of his power are evident everywhere. And what David shows us at the beginning of Psalm number 8 here is that when we begin earnestly looking up to God and meditating and thinking about who he is and what he has done, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And as a result, we now get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, when the human mind is fully applied to meditate on God, we realize very quickly we come very far short of God. And that's because God is a God who is bigger than creation because he transcends it. Here's the second point. Who is God? God is a God who transcends creation. Here's what the full of verse 1 says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. God is separate and distinct from creation. But God is also greater than creation because he transcends it. Everything in our created world is natural. But God is not natural. God is supernatural. And his glory, his supernatural splendor and glory can never be contained by the natural world. Even though the universe is billions and billions of light years wide, it's still finite, meaning you can still measure it. There's a start in the end, but God is infinite. You can't put him in a box. You can't contain him. And nothing finite like our universe could ever contain an infinite God. The heavens cannot contain God's infinite glory because God is one who transcends creation. Now, here's a little thought experiment. When you, as a flesh and bones human being, try to rationalize in your mind that God is infinite, that he is without bounds, that he can't be contained, that he's God, that he's bigger than everything that's known, it's going to give you a headache. Do you know why? Because your mind is finite. Because your head is finite. And a finite mind can never fully grasp an infinite God. If you ever could figure out God, start to finish A to Z, guess what? He wouldn't be God. God is not an iPhone. We don't have blueprints and plans to know how he works exactly. So meditating and thinking about God is supposed to induce a finite human being to awe because he is greater than creation. Verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Third point. Who is God? God is a God who uses his power in godly ways. Point number three, who is God? God is a God who uses his power in godly 
ways. There's a fancy word called the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. That refers to the fact that God is self-existent. He's self-contained. Nothing made him. He just always is. And as a function of, of the aseity of God, he never needed anything because he's God. So God, in the beginning... Existing as a function of himself, needing nothing. He didn't have any unmet needs. He didn't have a hole in his heart. God needed nothing. But what did God use his power to do? He used his power to create. He didn't use his power to annihilate or destroy. God used his power to create the universe, to create life. And not only just us life, millions and millions of different types of life. And not only that, he created a world that is radically, radically pro-life. That nurtures and sustains and makes environment hospitable to life. But not only that, God also designed life in a way so that when little babies are born, they're innocent. They're vulnerable, they're helpless, they're defenseless. And you know what God does? God uses his power in godly ways to help them. There's an axiom, a saying going around that says, God cares for fools and babies, yea and amen, because he does. It's a miracle in many instances that a helpless, defenseless, weak, fragile child that comes into the world completely vulnerable thrives and flourishes. And part of the reason explains that is because God uses his power in godly ways to nurture and support them. God uses his power to care for the most vulnerable of us. And God is so great, he can entrust his praise to the mouths of little babies and not be robbed one iota of his glory. And what he'll do is he'll use weak words from a weak little baby to annihilate his enemies. Who could do such a feat? Only God could, because God uses his power in godly ways. Think about it. What are words? It's basically sounds plus breath. Nothing special. It's sound waves in the air vibrating. It's it's nothing miraculous. So a little baby crying, making a word, is something weak. But God now takes that. And uses that to not only derive glory and praise, but also to make the avengeful and all of his adversaries cease. Beloved, do we know that the cry of baby Moses, that cry took down the most powerful empire at the time on the face of planet Earth? What does the book of Exodus say? Pharaoh, who represents worldly power, who represents self-exaltation, he put the order out and said, kill all newborn Hebrew male babies. Pharaoh's daughter 
sees a little baby boy in a makeshift ark. God used his power in godly ways to make sure the little baby was delivered safely. And what was baby Moses doing when Pharaoh's daughter found him? He was crying out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes. And what did God therefore do? He raised that baby Moses up in Pharaoh's household, and one day that baby became a man. And that man, being sent by God, said, let my people go. And God, following the story through the, the, the drama in Exodus, took that little baby who began crying to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. God uses his power in godly ways. He does not use his power to kill, to oppress, to overburden, to enslave. God uses his power to set free, to liberate, so that God's people may live. God uses his power in godly ways. Therefore, he doesn't need to use heavenly armies when he has the mouths of infants and nursing babes. And the grand irony is, when those infants and babies open their mouths, they shut the mouths of proud men like Pharaoh. There's a saying that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's true because human beings regard power as a drug. They get a little taste of it, they want more. And now, the power that they have begins having power over them. They're a slave to their power, and their power tells them what to do. Power corrupts human beings. But the reason why God can use his power in godly ways is because God is greater than his power. Think about that for a second. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, but God is greater than his power. God tells his power what to do, not the other way around. Because what God is, beloved, is holy, holy, holy. That's the cardinal characteristic that defines the essence of his character. And God can use his power in godly, not ungodly ways because he is a holy God greater than his power. He'll use that power in godly ways in creation. He'll use that power in godly ways to care for babies and nursing infants. He'll even use that power in redemption. A holy God, the most offensive thing in the cosmos to a God that is holy, is sin. And what did a holy God who is omnipotent use his power to do? He used his power to save sinners. He finds sin abhorrent, but he sent his son to become a man in order to save humankind. He uses power in godly ways, and therefore, his power is displayed in human weakness. God uses the foolishness of preaching to change the world. God did not send his apostles to who first laid the foundation of his church. They were not sent out with swords and daggers in their hands. They were sent out with a Bible in their hands. 
And he even uses men at their weakness, at their weakest, who if you looked at their resume, you would never think they'd be qualified to preach the word of God. And he uses them to overthrow satanic strongholds. God is a God who uses his power in godly ways. And I say all that to make the practical point that God can only begin to demonstrate his power in your life until you let go of yours. Because the second you cling on to your power, which you're invariably going to use in ungodly ways, then there is no room for the divine, godly power of God. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I'll tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I can do all things through me when I strengthen myself. It doesn't say that. It says, I can do all things through him, through Christ Jesus, and his strength is what makes me strong. And now, because godly power is being flown through me, now I can do labors and works for God. It is only when we absolve ourselves of our own power and adopt a posture of simple, childlike faith that God will use us as natural conduits through which his power flows. Verse number three. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? There's a difference between seeing and having vision. There's a difference between seeing and having vision. A unregenerated, carnal, fleshly person can look at the brilliance of the night sky. They can see the, the, the black sky. They can see the sun, the, the, the moon. They can see the stars. And a natural person will never see God in any of that. They'll never see the work of God's fingers. A natural person never sees God in anything, even if it's spiritual. A natural person could be looking at Jesus in the face and see nothing special. But a spiritual person who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, now they see God in everything. They see, they see a spiritual God even in natural things. They can look up at the night sky and say, wow, that is the handiwork. That's the fine finger work of my Lord and my maker. And when a spiritual person looks at creation, they see the works of God's fingers. So here's the first, fourth point. Who is God? God is a God who reveals who he is in his work. God is a God who reveals who he is in his work. And by work here, I'm referring to works in nature. God's works in nature reveals that he is gracious to us. My wife is called to be a doctor. But sometimes she thinks she's called to knit scarves. So I let her run free with that. So sometimes what she'll do 
is she'll use her fingers to make scarves for my sons and I. And they're always these very warm, these very soft, these very endearing scarves that always keep my sons and I's necks warm in the wintertime. They work out great. And I pay no money, so I love it when she does it. (laughs) Best scarf is a free scarf. But the point I'm making is that you have a flesh and bones, intelligent, vibrant person who is using her fingers to make something subordinate to make something inferior, to make something less than she is. So what's David saying in Psalm number 8? That God is using his fingers, poetically speaking, to make the cosmos. Now if a living, breathing woman uses her fingers to make something um, so subordinate to her as a scarf. Imagine how grandiose, how awesome, how majestic God must be if he's using his fingers to make the grandeur of the cosmos that we see up above. Because when we now consider how big God is, relative to how small we are in the grandeur of the universe, what does that do? That evokes a sense of smallness. That evokes a sense of nothingness. But still, in spite of that nothingness, what has God chosen to do? He's chosen to put us in a privileged position in creation which inspires us to cast our eyes upon God and say, this surely is a God who is gracious. This surely is a God who is kind. This surely is a God who has bestowed upon us unmerited favor because his fingers made the cosmos, yet with those same fingers, he is mindful and cares for us. But more than that, God is a God who reveals who he is in his works. His works also reveal that God is beautiful and splendid. People like putting wallpapers on their computer, right? It's always nature scenes of a beach, of a mountainscape, of hills. Why is that? Because nature is beautiful. If you ever walked on the beach in the middle of the day and see the bright blue sea ahead of you and the breeze hits your skin, you say, wow, this is gorgeous. If you ever walked in a garden in the cool of the day and saw the leaves flapping and all the bright, beautiful colors of red and pink and yellow and you breathe in and you experience that sweet savor of God's beautiful creation, all of that is beautiful. And if God, with his fingers, made something less subordinate and inferior to him, but the nature in which we see is beautiful, how much more beautiful and splendid does that give us a picture of God? What do men make with their fingers? Parking lots. What do men make with their fingers? Atom bombs. What do men make with their fingers? Subway stations. None of that is beautiful. But the divine handiwork of God is gorgeous, which gives us a snapshot and a picture of God Almighty. John Wesley once wrote, quote, God created the heavens and the earth and didn't half try, end quote. And if God didn't half try and the end result, the end product is still gorgeous, then how much more 
is Adonai. God is a God who reveals who he is in his work. God's works reveal that he remembers human beings by his providence. He remembers human beings by his continual protective care. Nature is not just beautiful. It also serves a purpose. It also is functional in that it nurtures and it sustains life. God remembers each of us by putting us in a natural world that not only looks nice, but is also nice for life. When you walk outside in the middle of the day and look up at the heavens above and see God's blue sky and you see the birds flying through the air, do you know that every day God feeds millions and millions of birds? And that's just birds. There are foxes and leopards and worms and you get the point. Every year, God feeds billions and billions of birds. Now let's argue from lesser to greater. If God spends that much time and that much effort feeding billions and billions of birds, then what exactly do you, being made in his image and likeness, have to worry about? Why ought you to worry? Why ought you to be anxious? Why ought you to ever doubt that God actually has a vested interest in caring for you when he does all that for birds? Matthew 6, 26 to 34. When a person goes out at night and they see the starry sky, guess what? Stars are nice to look at. Stars also are a calendar. God put constellations in the night sky for us to use, for us to gauge the seasons, for us to gauge time, so farmers would know when it was time to plant crops and when it was time to pull crops out of the ground. In the night-day cycle, what is God telling us? That since the beginning of time, every time there was a night, what always followed? The day. God is telling us his mercies are new every morning. Light always follows the darkness and after the dark night of the soul, the new morning of grace always follows. Beloved, we have two Bibles. One Bible is the one that's portable that we hold in our hand. The other big, the other really, really big Bible is nature where God is telling us by his providence that he is a God who nurtures, protects, and cares for his creation. Nature tells us that it's dependent, that it's consistent, that it's reliable. You don't have to have any doubts that tomorrow will be tomorrow. The sun is going to rise. The moon is going to set. A sailor doesn't have to doubt that they can put a boat on the water and it'll float because nature is reliable. And by God's work in nature, God is telling us, that he is dependable, he is consistent, he is gracious, he is trustworthy, and he is reliable. Verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Here's the fifth point. Who is God? 
God is a God who is a creator, but he's also a creator that is caring. God is a God who is a creator, but he's also a creator that is caring. How does he care for us? Verses 5 to 8 tell us. Yet you, Lord, have made man a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. God didn't just make human beings and then leave us alone. He made human beings and then continued to care for us. He made the generic human being an official in his administrative arrangement in the world. He's caring for us by crowning us with glory and majesty. He's caring for us by giving human beings rule over the rest of creation. He's caring for us by putting members of creation under subjection to our feet, not so that we would use our God-gifted power in ungodly ways, but so that we would use this privilege and use this power in godly ways. And God has made sure he has given humankind certain capacities so they can rule responsibly, like morality, like reason, like intellect, like his word. God cares for humankind so much that he even made us a little lower than himself. Verse 5 says, Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than God. The word for God here in Hebrew is Elohim. Now some Bibles don't translate that word God. They'll translate it as something else. The King James, the NIV, says angels. Yet you have made him a little lower than angels. The ESV says heavenly beings. You have made men a little lower than heavenly beings. And understandably, some Bible translators don't want to make mankind to be too close to God because that sounds too prideful. That sounds too boastful. That sounds like an invitation for self-exaltation. But when the Hebrew word Elohim is used... It usually refers to God. And when we zoom out and consider what God has done in the entire canon of Scripture now, when we let the whole interpret the part, what we see is that God cares so much for man that he sent his son to become a man in order to save man. And this was after humankind revolted against him. The Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Meaning before God even said, let there be light, he knew we would revolt. But Jesus was the one who said, it's okay, I'll go. I will go and save man. Because God cares for us. Beloved, God did not ordain a salvation plan 
for angels. He did not ordain a salvation plan for heavenly beings. Does not Hebrews 1.14 say that angels are ministering spirits? Who do they minister to? Man. What does Luke 15.10 say? Does it say that every time an angel is a great job, the church on earth rejoices? No. It says when one sinner comes to repentance, the angels in heaven rejoice. And does not 1 Corinthians chapter 6 say that the elect ultimately one day will judge angels? Beloved, of course God made humankind a little lower than himself in his image and in his likeness. That does not make us gods. That makes us created. That does not invite us to praise and exalt ourselves. That invites us to praise our maker who has bestowed upon us this precious gift, revealing that God is a creator that especially cares for man, that especially cares for humankind. Six points. Who is God? God is a God who leads by example. God is a God who leads by example. God is not a hypocrite. He never tells us one thing and does another. He never does one thing and expects us to do something else. In fact, what God loves doing in the Bible is he acts first. He sets the example first and then gives his word after he sets the example. And if there's one overriding example that God has shown us over and over and over again in his word, it's the example of infinite grace. Where God didn't have to, but he did. Where people didn't deserve it, but he showed them grace anyway. Where people should have been wiped out, where he could have said, never mind a long, t- a long time ago, but he didn't. And when God leads by example, what what does God's example do? He creates humankind, he forms man, and then he gives man a gift. He gives man the gift of dominion and rule over creation in putting things in subjection under his feet. It's a gift of grace meaning humankind did not deserve, humankind did not merit, humankind did not earn their privileged position in creation. Newsflash, humankind never had a right to their position of dominion in creation. When we follow God's example, his example of grace, we realize it's a gift. We are subordinates. We realize that we are nothing. We are but dust had God not put us where we are. And that's the worldview you come to when you follow God's example. But what now happens when you don't follow God's example? 
when you don't follow God's example, now you do have a right. Now you are entitled. Now you can claim a right for yourself to whatever. And when you claim a right, a right is something that's autonomous. Autonomous from who? God. A right is something that now makes you independent. Independent of what? God. Now you say, I don't care about God's example. I don't care that God is gracious. I don't care that God is caring. I don't care that God uses his power in godly ways. I have a right to X, Y, Z. And that is now what happens when you don't follow God's example. Now, this is going to apply to human relationships in general. This applies to how people interact in the environment, how husbands treat wives, how people interact in the church, how politics works, how nations works, how tribes work, how human civilization works. The minute someone says, I have a right, they have now stepped away from God's example. Now what happens? They say, blank is my right. Or I have a right to blank. Really, where did that right come from? Because when we follow God's example, no one has any rights. And what invariably now happens is once someone claims an independent, autonomous right, they will go to great lengths to secure that right. And the irony is, rights are a finite resource. So once Johnny claims a right, he now has to deny rights of everyone else around him to get what he's entitled to. The end result is domination, oppression, injustice, violence on political, social, economic, and spiritual levels. The first person to ever claim a right in history was the devil himself. He looked at God and thrones upon high and said, I have a right to that. I want it. And has been trying to supplant our maker ever since. The only person who has a right in the entire cosmos is God. Because it's all his there is one divine right holder. His name is Yahweh Elyon. But when we follow God's example, what did God use his right to do to give us everything? That's God's example. He used what was his to basically gift and bestow on the rest of creation the right to live to worship and serve and glorify him. And when you now look at what God did and look at his example, what's the logical, rational conclusion? You now don't say, life is now great. Thanks, God. You now live your life, redirect and orient your life to glorify God, without whom there isn't a point anyway. Last verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm concludes 
on the same note with which it began, by praising God's name. And if anything else, I dare say the praise at the end of the psalm is more zealous, has more fire behind it, because now we've rehearsed who God is. Now I want the church to consider that this last line of Psalm number 8 is going to be sung in paradise. It's going to be sung in eternity. Because when I read the Old Testament and I read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you read the newspaper, if you open your eyes, there are plenty of places where God's name is not majestic at all. People try to pollute, to downgrade, and spit upon God's name. We live in a world where people trivialize God's name. They say, oh my... Or they put God's name in front of a four-letter cuss word. That's not majesty. That's not reverence. So when will this line have its fullest, deepest meaning? When Christ comes back. When the King of kings and Lord of lords who's sitting upon on high right now in heaven comes back to earth and now inaugurates his earthly kingdom where now he will reign and everything will be in subjection under his feet on earth where now... The new earth will in unison, with one heart, one mind, and one voice, sing the chorus, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then it will be truly true and have its maximum meaning. Psalm 8 points forward to Jesus. This is how the writer of Hebrews interpreted it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. This is how the Apostle Paul interpreted it in 1 Corinthians 15.6 and Ephesians 1.22. And let us not forget that Jesus applied Psalm number 8 to himself in Matthew 21, verse 16. Final closing point. Who is God? Jesus Christ. This psalm, beloved, is about Jesus. It has its fullest, richest, deepest expression in the Messiah. Verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, how majestic is your fame, how majestic is your reputation. Yes, Lord Jesus, how majestic is your fame, is your reputation, because here on earth you were born of a virgin. You had a public ministry where you did miracles. You then went to the cross. You made a substitutionary atonement for sin, set your people free. Three days later, you rose from the dead. Then you sent out the apostles to lay the foundation for your church. And right here, right now, to this very day, your work is continuing right here on earth. Verse 2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries. The story Jesus applies, Psalm number 8, 
applies the psalm to himself to the context of that story in Matthew 21 you had little children waving leaves saying Hosanna Hosanna they got it they understood with their simple childlike faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah but all of the proud Pharisaic Bible teachers of the time with all of their training and intellect they miss the God standing right in front of them because their natural eyes failed to see the spiritual God in their midst. And who are we talking about as examples today? The children. Not the elite Bible teachers. The children who by their simple childlike faith recognized Jesus for who he was, for who he is. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained... John chapter 1 tells us that everything that was made was made through Christ. So when the psalmist writes, the Lord made the heavens above through the work of his fingers, the New Testament corollary to that is that all of creation was made through Jesus Christ. Verse number 4, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Jesus took thought of man, as I already mentioned, before creation began and made the decision to remember, to care for, and to cherish humankind before God said, let there be light. So when Adam and Eve rebelled in paradise, that didn't catch God by surprise, and God already had the cross in mind before Genesis 1-1 even got started. Verses 5 and 6, Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And what Philippians chapter 2 tells us is that Jesus temporarily emptied himself and in subordinating his will made himself a little lower than God for a season where he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. And for this reason, Jesus now is highly exalted. So that when he returns and inaugurates his earthly kingdom, verse number 9, all of creation here on earth will be in subjection under his feet, and all of creation will now say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Church, Psalm number 8 takes us from the very, very beginning to the very, very end. It begins with us looking up at God, which induces us to look at ourselves, and ultimately now we end looking forward and looking up to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason, this contextualization of God's word, knowing who God is, knowing who God has, what God has done, knowing that has ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, that is why we praise him. That is why now we compose a hymn, a song of celebration, like Psalm number 8. Let us pray. 
Lord, when we consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, when we consider your works in and through history, when we consider your dealings with your people, when we consider your day-to-day dealings with your church, when we consider, O Lord, all the times that you could have used your power in ungodly ways, when when we consider, O Lord, all the times when you could have turned your back on us, when we consider, O Lord, when you could have made the decision to justly not care for us, none of those situations, O Lord, would ever apply because you are God, you are Yahweh, you are Adonai, you are holy, and you, O Lord, are incapable of ever acting unlike yourself because you are unchanging, you are holy, you are just, you are true, and Lord, we adore you. This, O Lord, is a psalm that looks up to the skies above and finds fuel to cherish you, O Lord, to bless you and to admire you. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you cause the hearts to turn of all the hearers of this word today, that you will speak to their hearts and you will speak to their minds and cause their heart to turn so their eyes, Lord Jesus, will fully be open to see, to appreciate you, for the precious treasure that you truly are. In your beloved name we pray, amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.